Well, take your Bibles and open them up with me to First uh, Peter chapter two this morning. First Peter chapter two. Life is full of choices, as I'm sure you all know. Every day you're confronted with decisions to make, and sometimes there are hundreds of options to choose from. Sometimes, though, decisions are much simpler. Sometimes you just have to choose between this or that, this or that. You just have two options ahead of you, and you have to choose between this or that. A couple of years ago, I remember hearing about this new health book that came out called Eat This, Not That. You ever heard of it? The whole premise of the book was that at every meal, you're confronted with many choices as to what to eat. And traditionally, Americans make the wrong choice. We go for the, the unhealthy or the less than healthy option. And the book claims that if you just make the right choice when you're eating, and you eat this, not that, that you can, you can lose weight without even dieting. Now, does this work? I don't know. I haven't tried it. It's not like I, I really need to go on a diet here, but... I found the premise behind the book interesting, and some of the choices they present, this or that choices, seem to make sense. I'll give you an example. When you go to a restaurant, you want a healthy option, so you go for a salad. Be careful. Some salads are out to get you. The worst salad in America is CPK's Waldorf chicken salad. It has 1,561 calories and 31 grams of saturated fat. Just for comparison, that's more calories than in any one of CPK's pizzas and and their salad. Instead, the book says you choose the classic Caesar salad, just 649 calories. It's a simple this or that choice, saving you about 1,000 calories. That makes sense. I'll give you another example. The worst dessert in America, Baskin-Robbins fudge brownie, 31 degrees below shake. I'm sure none, none of you have had that, I'm sure, but just one large shake 1,900 calories, just one. 80 grams of fat, 225 grams of sugar. That, that's pretty insane. Instead, they say choose the light Aloha Brown ice cream, 20, 250 calories, 33 grams of sugar. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes, that makes sense. This one is pretty crazy. The worst burger in America, this is bad for me. That, that's pretty much my diet, just a burger. But this one literally sounds like a heart attack on a plate. It's Chili's Jalapeno Smokehouse Bacon Burger. Just one burger, 2,210 calories, 144 grams of fat, 46 grams saturated fat, 6,600 milligrams of sodium. I don't know if if you guys know, like, the daily values you're supposed to be eating. This is more than a day that you should be eating, like, one meal. It's more than two days' worth of saturated fat. And this is the kind of the bad part. Well, it's all pretty bad, but... It's more sodium than you would get if you ate six pounds of McDonald's fries. That's a lot of sodium in one burger. And they say a no-brainer, the margarita grilled chicken, 550 calories. And it's a this or that. I'll just give you one more, just for the sake of illustration here. The the overall worst dish in America, the, the worst one that's out there at a restaurant, Cheesecake Factory's Bistro Shrimp Pasta. That doesn't sound bad. But the single plate, just just one plate, meant for one person, 2,730 calories and 78 grams of saturated fat. It's something I would expect a bear to eat before hibernating. A Cheesecake Factory comes in as the unhealthiest restaurant for four years in a row now. And basically, if you don't get that, that's like eating more than three sticks of butter for dinner. That's pretty much the calorie level there. 
Instead, they say go with the fresh grilled salmon, 490 calories, 6 grams of fat. That sounds like a good choice. Now, we're just talking about food here. But, but life has many more decisions like this. And they oftentimes can be simplified to just a this or that. Choose this, not that. If you choose poorly in life over time, like with these food options, results can be disastrous. And we have a text in 1 Peter this morning. We're presented with another simplified this or that choice. Except Peter's not talking about food. And he doesn't care what you eat. He's not concerned really about your physical health. He's concerned for your spiritual health. And here's a choice that will impact your spiritual life and your relationship with God. And the choice is simple. What type of a people will you be like? You, corporately, as a church, who are you going to be? God is speaking through Peter here. He's telling you to to be this, not that. Be, Be this type of people, holy and upright, and not that type of people, depraved and ungodly, like the world around us. There's a simple choice to make, simple options on the table, and God calls you simply to, to choose rightly and to live. Read along with me 1 Peter chapter 2, now, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter's beginning a new section in this letter. It's the largest section. It's going to take us all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. And from the beginning of this letter through chapter 2, verse 10, he's been focusing on primarily our salvation, our, our new birth, our new life, our new hope. And up to this point, he's been mostly theological in his instruction. He's, he's been laying that foundation of salvation. He's just given a few practical notes, but mostly he's been instructing theologically about our salvation. This all changes now. In this next section, it's going to change. And he's going to focus really on the practical. He's going to give detailed commands dealing with specific situations, all of which are going to flesh out the new birth experience that he's talked about so far. There's a shift in focus here in this new section, this middle section in 1 Peter. And before, he was interested in how we as Christians relate to God and how we relate to one another. But what about the world? How do we relate to the world that's that's going on around us? That's the focus of this middle section, this next section. And what should we do when it comes to living in the world? How how should we relate? What should our strategy be? Should we totally withdraw from the world, you know, segregate, run away, hide? Some Christians in the past have done this. The monastics throughout church history have taken this approach. They sought to completely flee the world, separate away. Some would go so far as to even just go live in a monastery in the desert and just totally be cut off from the world all the days of their lives. Today, Catholic monks or nuns, the Amish, for example, 
They believe that the best strategy for relating to the world is just to just seclude themselves, to isolate themselves away from the world. You know, the world is captivated by sins. Let's just abandon it. Let's just move away, start our own society, have as little contact as possible. Is that the right strategy? Is, is that how we should relate to the world? Others go the opposite route. They, they believe the best strategy for relating to the world as Christians is to just entirely embrace the world, to live like the world, to become just like them, to be indistinguishable from anyone else, just, just blend in. Christians in the past have done this as well. And you see this more and more today where people in the church feel like the only way to reach the world, the only way really to survive in the world is to just become like them. Let's be like them. So the world and oftentimes its vices are, are pumped into the church with the result that total unbelievers can go to the church and feel right at home and feel comfortable. Some in the church have become indistinguishable from the world is that the right strategy? Is that what should we be doing when it comes to relating to the world? God would have us go in neither of these directions, opting instead for a middle route. And see, this, this right strategy for relating to the world is outlined in our text, 1 Peter 2, 11-12. Peter tells us how to relate to the world as believers... And then he'll go on to flesh this strategy out in the passages to come through the rest of uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's going to apply it to the government, to the workplace, to the home environment, to the church, and many more. He's going to say, you know, this is how you do it. This is how you live successfully in God's eyes as Christians in the world. This is how, whether you're at work or at home or at school or wherever, this is how you do it. This is how you relate to the world. This is how you reach the world. And this strategy is going to be our focus this morning. We're going to see it really outlined in verses 11 and 12. So for, from our text, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, we want to discover just a simple two-part strategy for living as Christians in the world. A simple two-part strategy for living as Christians in the world. This is how you do it, he says. This is how you live and at the end, we'll see the impact this strategy makes. But a simple two-part strategy for living as Christians in the world. The first part is this. Be free from the world's lusts. Be free from the world's lusts. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Peter begins with this term of endearment, beloved, he says. It's a personal appeal. He also uses it to introduce new sections in his letter, right here, introducing new section. And then later in chapter 4, verse 12, he'll use it again to introduce the final section to his letter. It's like a, his transition word. Beloved means, of course, those who are loved, loved by Peter, loved by God. Beloved, he says, I urge you to abstain. This is Peter making a personal appeal to these believers to deny ungodly desires. Now, it may not sound like it, but this is a strong appeal. He's saying, I strongly urge you, I implore you, even I beg you, abstain. He's not issuing a command. It's not actually a command in the Greek. He's rather 
appealing directly to their hearts. He's appealing to them. Why would he do that? Why not just command it? Because he knows, especially when it comes to these inner desires, victory has to come from within. It has to come from within. A person must be compelled to do what is right from within. External commands just just not going to do it. They only go so far. At the end of the day, since these lusts exist in the heart, no one can really force you to abstain. You've got to take this stand on your own. You have to choose to abstain. And he's appealing to them to do that. Specifically, Peter urges these believers to abstain from what? From fleshly lusts, he says. What's that? What are these fleshly lusts? Well, there are all those sins relating to the sinful self. The the self-centeredness of man, the selfishness of man. When the Bible talks about the sinful flesh, it's not talking about our our skin and bones, our actual skin, our physical bodies. The flesh, it's a term used to describe that part of our humanity that's still unredeemed. It's the remnant of the old self that remains with us even after salvation, and it carries with it all of the old sinful desires. Here's how it works. Before salvation... All people are enslaved to sin. It's like someone just hammered a post into the ground and then chained you to it. You're chained to sin. You're enslaved to it. You can't escape it if you try it. Here's the thing. As unbelievers, but before salvation, you don't want to escape. You don't want to escape. You love sin. You desire it. You want it. You believe there's actually happiness and satisfaction there chained to that post. You don't want to escape. And that's how we all once were. That, that's all of us once. Ephesians 2.3, talking about us before salvation, says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's just how we once were. Chained to the post, not wanting to escape, just living for the lust of the flesh. But then Christ comes along. He finds you and he frees you from that post in the ground, from sin. And now if you're in Christ, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're, you're free to move away. You should move away. And Christ has also given you a new nature, a new self, which is able to enjoy the true satisfaction that comes in him. There's just one problem, the only problem, is that while we still have our old bodies on earth, we still have some of those remnant desires. still have some of them. There's still a warped part of us that actually still desires sin. It's in us. And so even though we're no longer chained to that post in the ground, sometimes it it draws us back to it, like a a gravitational pull. It draws us. And so it's because of all this that Peter is saying, don't go back. That's what he's saying. Don't go back. Don't give in. He's urging you, don't listen to those desires that you still have left over in you. Don't listen to them. Don't give in to them. Instead, listen to the Holy Spirit, who's also within you. Listen to him. Follow the Spirit. 
This is Galatians 5. This is Romans 7 and 8. This is James 1. That's the ticket. Romans 6.12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That's a command for you. Don't let sin reign in your body so that you're obeying its lusts. It's there. It's still there. Don't listen. Romans 8.13 For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. If that's how you're living, still chained to that post or still living that way, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's what you have to do. I trust you all know what it means to abstain, to keep away, to avoid, to hold yourself off from. This exhortation comes in the present tense, so this is continual. He's saying presently, continually be abstaining from these sinful desires. There's no exceptions. There's no reason to go back. And the world today, it's gotten things so backwards, but it's really nothing new. In an effort to justify their behavior and, and placate their guilty consciences, the world has labeled these lusts of the flesh not as wicked, but as good. The world calls these good. I mean, they say they're natural. I mean, it's just part of human nature. How could that be bad? It's just how we are. It's how we're born. It's part of human nature. How could these be bad? These lusts are good. And so the message has become not to deny them, to embrace them. Really to, to enjoy them, to indulge in them, they're, they're a part of you. In fact, the worst thing you can do in America today is to deny yourself, your desires, your urges, and to not give in. That's, that's the ultimate sin in America today. Let me just think, today, whether you're the high school student, the young adult, the Christian couple, the, the businessman, whoever, if you want to take a stand for, for God's standard and abstain, abstain from drunkenness, abstain from drugs, abstain from sex before marriage, abstain from greed, abstain from watching certain movies, whatever, what does the world do to you? They slander you. They malign you. They ridicule you. Now, have you ever experienced this? If you have, don't let it get you down. The answer is not to give in and to cave into the world's ridicule. The answer is to keep standing firm while trusting God. I mean, just, just turn the page with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and look at verse 3. A very similar passage we'll get to in time. Look what he says. 1 Peter 4.3, he says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. They malign you. The world, they don't understand, like, why are you not doing this with us anymore? And so they ridicule you. But, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't give in. The world is going to pressure you and malign you for not living how you used to live. But the answer is not to go back. The answer is not to listen to the world. These lusts that are in you and these sinful desires that all of us have, contrary to what the world says, they're not good. 
The world wants to paint them as good, as natural, as normal. But they're not good, and they're not from God. Rather, although the world hates this label, they're sinful. Turn the page again, just to the right, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 15. You want to know how I know these lusts of the flesh are not good, that they're not from God? It's because 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says so. These are not good desires that you have left over within you. Verse 15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. It's just mutually exclusive. You either love God or you love the world. The world talking about that evil world system that's opposed to God. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, what is in the world? The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life, where is it from? It's not from the Father. It's from the world. It's not from the Father. It's not good. Everything God made was good, right? It's not from the Father. But, verse 17, the world world is passing away. And also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now you have a pretty simple choice of this or that. This or that. Abstain or not. Give in to these lusts or not. What's it going to be? How are you living and choosing right now? Those who belong to God will stand for him, they'll side for him, they'll live for him, and they'll abstain. Maybe though you come here this morning and you're struggling. You're struggling with the flesh. You're having a hard time not sinning. You feel that your desires... Give birth to sin more often than you like. You're having a hard time. What should you do? Does this mean you stand condemned? Well, understand this. Every true believer struggles against the flesh. The only people who don't struggle are the lost because they have nothing to struggle against. So if you're here and you're not struggling against the flesh, then you've got something really to worry about. But if you're struggling, keep up the struggle. Keep up the struggle and don't lose sight of the deciding factor. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's. Turn to him. Deal with your sins the right way, which is back in 1 John 1.9, by the way. You can turn there. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The solution is not to deny your sin, pretend like it's not there. It's to confess it, repent, go to Christ, and then work harder to deny your desires. Practice self-control, self-denial. Deny your desires and replace them with godly desires instead. That's what you need. That's what you need to do to abstain. If you want to abstain, that's what you have to do. You can turn back to 1 Peter 2 because he's not done. Peter's not done. He wants to help you out. He wants to help you abstain more from these internal lusts that lead to sin. And so he includes two reasons in verse 11 as to why you should do so. He's going to give us a couple of reasons as to why you should abstain, why you should keep away and deny these these lusts, these desires that are in you. These are two reasons for backing up and enforcing why you should abstain. Let's look at these. Number one, reason one, abstain because of who you are. 
Abstain because of who you are. Now, who are you? Now look at verse 11. Notice how Peter appeals to your identity as a reason to abstain. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. You need to abstain because of who you are. Who are you? These two words, aliens and strangers, they're basically synonyms. They refer to someone who's living in another country but doesn't really belong there. You're living somewhere else, but you're not a citizen. You're not a member. You're a foreigner. That's the picture of Christians. Christians are foreigners on earth. They're exiles, strangers, wandering around. It's because their real citizenship is in heaven. And as such, you are called to live in a manner reflecting your home, your real citizenship. That's how you're to live. You often see this today. Diplomats from other countries, they come, they live in America for a couple years, right? Usually in New York, where the UN is. They come, and they respect American laws, but they don't give up their identity just because they're living in America. They don't give up their home customs. And so, you know, a woman from the Middle East might continue to wear a head covering, or, or men from uh, various African countries might continue to wear their traditional clothing. Now, why do they do that? It's because they know that although they are temporarily living in America, it's not their home. Their, their home is back home. And they want to live that way. They want to live as such, like a citizen of their home country and represent their home country. And so likewise, you as citizens of heaven, though you're temporarily residing here on earth, you're called to live according to your true home. And that home, not characterized by the lust of the flesh. It's not. Rather, it's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And so display this character during your time of stay on earth. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what characterizes your home. This is the first reason you need to abstain from these fleshly lusts, because of who you are. You don't belong here. You belong there. Live that way. Abstain because of who you are. Second reason he gives as to why you should abstain. Why why bother? Reason number two, abstain because of what sin is. Abstain because of what sin is. What is sin? Sin is your enemy. And as your enemy, it's trying to kill you. Let's look at verse 11 again. He says, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts. What are they doing? Which wage war against the soul. Sin is your age-old enemy. It's trying to kill you. And as such, it's waging war against your soul. This phrase for waging war, it's also in the present tense, which means, as is no surprise, this is a constant battle. The flesh and its sinful desires... They're they're constantly trying to take you down. They're constantly battling with you. They're they're constantly at war with your soul. You might expect Peter to say, though, that these fleshly desires are waging war against your body. It's kind of what you expect, like they're waging war against your body. After all, the, the world believes that. The world believes that. In fact, the world actually advocates at time restraining these sins, these lusts, 
because of the effects they have on the body. You notice that? Even the world will say, don't drink too much. Why? Oh, it might damage your liver. Even the world might say, well, don't smoke too much. Why? You get lung cancer. Even the world will, will say, don't be too promiscuous. Why? Well, you might get STDs or AIDS. See, they're only concerned about the body. But if only they realize that the war is for their soul. Yet as they give in to these sins and as they reject Christ and the gospel, they, they forfeit their soul and eternal life. As a believer in Christ, though, you need to realize there is a war raging on within you. The battle is against your soul. And look, if you're truly in Christ, you can't lose your soul, your salvation. That's not the point. But the enemy can make you totally ineffective and worthless for Christ during your time on earth. You don't want that. That's why you need to abstain. When you give in to these fleshly lusts, you're forgetting that they're your spiritual enemies. You're forgetting that. They're trying to take you down. You're helping the enemy. You're sabotaging your own spiritual walk when you give in to these fleshly lusts. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot wondering, why can't I run fast? Instead, you need to starve your flesh. And that's what abstaining does. It's starving the flesh. You know, in ancient times, when, a, when an army was trying to take over a city that was just too strong, they couldn't attack it head on. They had city walls that were too big. You know what they would do? They would surround the city. They would cut off the supply lines. And they would starve them out. they just wait. Sometimes a year, more. they just starve them out. The city, the enemy was too strong for a, a full assault. But they could starve them out and they could win. And that's what you need to do with your sin. Some of you feel like your fleshly lusts, they're just too strong. They're, they're too strong. It's probably because you keep feeding them. If you just start starving them by abstaining, you, you would see their, their power and their influence over you just start to decline over time. It would get weaker and weaker and weaker. You need to starve the flesh. Are you here today feeding the enemy? Are you dabbling in that secret sin no one really knows about, but you're kind of feeding under the table, just keeping it alive? Are you keeping enemy lines open by giving into those urges and desires? I urge you, and Peter urges you, abstain from these fleshly lusts. Starve the enemy. Don't give in. See those desires weaken and fall. This is what you need to do. If you're going to live as a Christian in a non-Christian world, right smack in the middle of it, this is what you need to do to thrive and to honor God. This is the first part of your strategy. Your strategy for living as a Christian in a non-Christian world. Number one, first, be free from the world's lusts. That's the first part of your strategy. Number two, second part of your strategy, from verse 12 now, be godly in the world's eyes. Be godly in the world's eyes. Look at verse 12. It says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. First part of the strategy for living in the world was negative. Negatively, 
abstain from these lusts, you know, avoid them, keep away from them. The second part is positive. Positively, keep your behavior excellent. And that's what he says first. First, keep your behavior excellent. In other words, let your behavior be seen as good. Let your conduct be observed as praiseworthy. He's saying do what is right. Do what is noble. Do what is good. Do what is godly. And he says, do this among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles or those in the world. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this here. He's not saying this is your only or primary motivation for godliness. It's not like Peter's telling you, okay, you know, act real good, keep your behavior excellent when you're around the world, when you're in the public square, but when you're behind closed doors, you do whatever you want. This is not what he's saying here. Just don't get that wrong. Of course, the, the primary motivation for godly living is to honor God. As we learned earlier, be holy because he is holy. That, that's the main reason. And he says, still, you need to behave rightly even when no one is looking. But, but here, he's talking about our strategy here. Our strategy for interacting with the world. When we do interact with the world, be sure, be all the more certain to keep your behavior excellent. Nothing gives a black eye to the church, to the gospel, to the cause of Christ when someone who calls himself a Christian doesn't live like it, especially in the world. Just this past week, Prince Harry of the UK got caught in this photo scandal just exposing his immorality to the world. And what a black eye for British royalty, right? That's what happened. See, that's not your strategy for living in the world. Don't do that. That's not the strategy. God says instead, especially when you're in the public eye, keep your behavior excellent. Let them see your good deeds. So how are you acting? How are you acting in the world? How how would God describe your behavior in the world? Excellent and praiseworthy or or not? Ungodly, unwholesome? Are you you just trying to blend in or are you standing out for the gospel? Examine your conduct, especially in the world. Live rightly. The problem with many people who call themselves Christians is that they compartmentalize their lives such that when they come to church, you know, they're pretty good. They look like Christians. They act pretty good. But when they leave the church, it's a whole different story. When they're at the workplace or at school or even at the home, they live like total unbelievers. And if you followed them around, you would have no idea they were Christians. They just live like the world. That's a problem. That's a problem. If this describes you, you need to repent. And you need to live in a consistent manner with what you claim to believe. You have to ask yourself, who are you living to please? Who are you living to please? Are you living to please the world? If you follow after Christ, the answer is no. Are you living to please yourself? If you follow after Christ, the answer is still no. Those, rather, who follow him, they live to please him. They've sold out to him. They've made the the this or that choice, and they chose Christ. So even when you're in the world, especially when you're in the world, live to please him. Again, it's just a this or that choice to make. Either live for Christ or don't. Some Christians try so hard to ride that fence they want to follow Christ, but they still want to you know, live like the world, be loved by the world. They just don't get it. Jesus was 
very Christ-like, was he not? Yeah, his little tongue-in-cheek. He's the definition of Christ-likeness. And yet what happened? Did, did the world love him and respect him? They hated him. They reviled him. So do you really think you can do better? You can be Christ-like and still be loved by the world at the same time? Not going to happen if you're truly following him. Not going to happen. Instead, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You just have to choose this or that. Live like this or like that. And nevertheless, though, for those who choose to follow Christ in this life, this is God's strategy for how you interact with the world. This is it. Be godly in the world's eyes. It's part two. Be godly in the world's eyes. What's the big deal here, though? Why, why is this God's strategy for living in the world? What makes this God's strategy? What does this strategy hope to accomplish? I, I told you at the beginning this would be a simple two-part strategy, and it is. Number one, be free from the world's lusts. Number two, be godly in the world's eyes. That's it. That's simple. But if you do this, if this is how you relate to the world, if this is how you live in the world, then you'll have an impact. And God wants you to have an impact. That's the whole point here. What's the impact? Well, it comes in verse 12. And so we've covered, really, number one, be free from the world's lust. Number two, be godly in the world's eyes. That's our strategy. In a sense, now number three, the impact Let me show you the impact this will have if you carry this out. Look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is your impact. If you put this into practice, God's strategy, this is the impact you will have on the world. Peter first mentions what? He says the slander, or he mentions the slander Christians receive from unbelievers. He's talking about a verbal assault, not physical, at this time, which is consistent. And when Peter is writing, the church in this area, they weren't being physically attacked and killed for the faith. That would come decades later. At this point, they were being really physically, socially persecuted. They're being spoken against. Their reputations are being slandered. Their their character is being maligned. Same thing happens today. Don't expect the world to stop slandering Christians. That's not going to happen. If the world ever does stop persecuting the church, it's just a signal that the church has compromised and isn't really standing for the truth. The world will always slander Christians, and they may even slander you as an evildoer. Has that ever happened to you? That's what he says in verse 12. Believe it or not, in New Testament times, the ancient Romans accused the Christians of being wicked and vile and evil. And if you know anything about the ancient Romans and their society, that would shock you, because they were so depraved and so wicked Yet the Romans actually accused the Christians of of murder, of incest, of cannibalism. They accused them of rebelling against the government, of threatening the empire status, of atheism for not worshiping Caesar or the gods. None of these charges were true. They all were misunderstandings and misrepresentations of Christian practice and sayings. 
I'll give you an example. You know, Christians early on, they started calling one another brother and sister in the faith. And we all are under Christ. We're all in the family of God. We're brother and sister. Such that even a, a couple, a husband and wife, yeah, we're husband and wife, but we're also, you know, brother and sister in Christ. But that was, of course, misrepresented to be incest. And charges were literally brought against them. Another example, Christians would celebrate communion by doing what? Partaking of the body and the blood of Christ, eating the body, drinking the blood. Of course, the Romans didn't understand or misconstrued the the symbolism to that. And they actually charged Christians of cannibalism. No joke. Christians were so widely slandered back then that Nero found them a suitable scapegoat for the fires he set in Rome. This, This sounds completely unjust. It is, especially given the true depravity of the Romans, But the same happens today. Believers are slandered simply for being Christians, simply for living out the faith, just doing what God says. So what should you do about this? How should you respond? Notice Peter doesn't prescribe that they go on a letter-writing campaign or go door-to-door, just try, try so hard to clear their name. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, just, just keep doing what is right. Just keep doing what is right. Keep bearing the fruit of good deeds. Though such deeds may be misrepresented, they're still the best answer to the world's wickedness and hostility. And over time, the world will take notice. And that's what he says in verse 12. In time, the world will observe your true goodness. Verse 12, this word for observe, it's talking about a long-term, a reflective observation. And those in the world will see your righteous behavior from a distance and it will catch them. It will prick them, Lord willing, over time. And then what will happen? Peter says, The thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, what? Glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the impact you can have on the world if you follow this strategy that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And this is referring to nothing other than the salvation of the lost. That's the impact you can have, an evangelistic impact, just by following the strategy. Now let's look at this phrase, the day of visitation. It can be either good or bad. It's an Old Testament concept, talking about God coming down to earth, visiting earth, and he can visit either to, to curse and to judge or to bless. Both happen in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, though, this This visitation most often refers to God coming to bless. He visits people with his grace to save them and to give them the new birth. It's possible to see here unbelievers begrudgingly glorifying God as they recognize his sovereignty on, on the day of their judgment. And that will happen. But it's not likely that's what Peter's referring to. It's more likely to see this as the willing and the glad recognition of God's glory as unbelievers come to the faith. The usage of visitation in the New Testament argues for this. Also, there's no definite articles here, so this is really, it can be saying a day of visitation. And this really fits with the context of chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, which we'll get to a little bit later, where, where unbelieving husbands are converted as they observe the godly behavior of their wives. Same word for observe. 
So putting it all together then, although some may see differently, I think it's best to see this as a reference to unbelievers being visited by God's grace, coming to salvation, and then glorifying God as they remember the godly lives of other believers they came in contact with. So, so think about this. God has given you this, this strategy for living in the world. And if you put it into practice, what kind of an impact are you going to have? God says here he will use it for some in the world to bring them to salvation. And that is quite an impact. That's quite an impact just by following this strategy. Your consistent testimony of being free from the world's lusts and being godly in the world's eyes is going to be one of the tools God uses to draw people to himself. That's quite an impact. It's been said before that your life is the only Bible some people will ever read. And it's true. It is true. For some people, their only exposure to Jesus is you as they observe you and how you live from afar. So, how you live? What are you going to show them? Will they see Christ in you or not? This is the impact of godly living. Your life and this strategy is the most effective foundation for the gospel. Now, don't, don't misunderstand again. No one's getting saved just by watching your life. In Romans 10, 14, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Nothing can escape the fact that you've got to share the gospel with unbelievers. Just back in 1 Peter 2.9, a couple weeks ago, what did we learn? God has given us this great new identity. Why? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of his name. Some Christians want to get away with you know, never sharing the gospel because, because they're scared. So they say to themselves, well, I don't really have to share as long as I just you know, live godly and, and be a good person. Not so fast doesn't work that way. You still need to tell people about Jesus with your, your verbs, with your words. You have to tell. That being said, nothing better frames the gospel than a consistent godly testimony. You know what makes a one-carat diamond look even better? A 24-carat gold ring surrounding it. The gold setting just beautifully frames the diamond ring. Likewise, your life is to frame the gospel. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the diamond. It's not the main deal, but it's to frame, to enhance, to show forth the gospel. So this is your strategy. Live this strategy out and watch the impact it has on other people. Keep your eyes open. Watch those who are watching you and then go share the gospel with them. At the very least, though, this text, this strategy is for you. You need to leave here considering how am I carrying this out? How am I doing this? Be free from the world's lusts. Be godly in the world's eyes. I want to finish off this morning with a story from Mark 15. So turn with me, last text. We'll finish with this. Mark chapter 15. Turn over with me. I want to tell you the story of the centurion at the cross. You know the story, I trust Christ is being crucified. And during the crucifixion, Roman guards were there to watch over the scene, make sure the criminals didn't escape. And the guards were led by whom? 
centurion. He's leading the guard. So here's a centurion guy, and he's likely, likely he's watched Jesus for quite some time. He probably saw him on trial, where he's standing before religious leaders. He saw Jesus not say a word, not utter a word in defense, just being innocent before them. He probably saw Jesus beaten and whipped. Maybe he oversaw the beatings. Maybe he even partook in them. Maybe he even spat on Jesus. Surely, though, at the beginning of the crucifixion, when he was nailed to that cross, this man, this centurion, was, was reviling and ridiculing Christ just like all the others. I mean, he, he didn't care about this guy. He's, he's a nobody. But look at what happens after Jesus dies. Mark 15, verse 39. When the centurion, who is standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Luke tells us that this man also started to praise God at this point. What's going on here? Is this guy coming to salvation? We don't know for sure, but the language in Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke definitely suggests it, and church tradition, for whatever it's worth, does say and report that this man did come to salvation. It certainly seems that way. It certainly seems that this is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded this in their Gospels. The question is then, what happened? What happened in just those few hours to change his mind? What did he see that moved him from being a hater of Christ to a potential lover of Christ? Did he talk to Jesus? There's no indication whatsoever that he ever spoke to Jesus. So we have to say no. Rather, he simply observed Jesus, just like our text says in 1 Peter. He was watching him. He was observing him throughout those hours on the cross. What did he see? Well, he saw a man who was beaten, bloodied, suffering, for sure. But he had seen hundreds of people like that. It's not his first crucifixion. It's It's just a guy being crucified. But he saw in Christ something different. He saw a man facing his own death with just great suffering, but he was still thinking about others, even as he was being crucified. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about others. The centurion saw Jesus minister to this thief, this this rotten criminal who was dying next to him and deserved to die. He, He deserved it, yet Jesus still offered him eternal life for his faith. He saw Jesus talking to God, asking his father not to condemn those who were killing him. He saw Jesus ask God to actually forgive those who were at that very moment killing him. And then the centurion saw Jesus concerned not about himself at death, about his mother, asking John to to care for his mother after he died. Now, who was this man? What, What was he really doing on that cross? We'll never know what was going on through the centurion's mind. I think we can piece this together, though. He stood there, and he observed the righteousness and just the godliness, the goodness of Christ. God visited this man, 
And he came to glorify God, just like our text says. We only have so much required in Scripture. We never know for sure here, but, but we do know this. The same can and does still happen today. God is looking to you to represent Christ to the world. That's why you can't just go run and hide. He wants you to represent Christ to the world. You are to display him to them. So, be free from the world's lust. Be godly in the, girls, in the world's eyes and have the impact that Jesus himself had on others. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for this text and we thank you for our Savior Christ as we reflect on him at the end here. How our Savior lived in the world. He certainly was free from the world's lusts and he certainly was godly in the world's eyes even though they misconstrued that as they do even today. Nonetheless, he sought to please you and he did. And he had an impact. Though some, for sure, reject, many came to glorify you through his witness, through his example, through his teaching. Lord, you call us to do the exact same thing today. We aren't Christ, but we can show the world Christ through our speech, but this morning we learn through our behavior as well. I pray for all of us that we would be free from the world's lust. Lord, when they when they come up within us, when, when they start to tempt us and try and take us over, may we just deny them and abstain. Instead, following after the Spirit within us, guiding us toward truth. And secondly, Lord, may we also all be godly in the world's eyes, seeking for just a righteousness, especially when we're in that public square, that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Give us grace to do this, Lord, and we pray for that impact. Nothing can replace preaching the gospel and sharing the word with others, but we want to have an impact one way or another. So may we all just implement this strategy, have an impact on the world. We want to see them come to you. In your name we pray. Amen.